Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me. Box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives. Well, before we uh, do get started, I do want to let you know this program is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners. And I want to thank Garland uh, so much for his support. We'll send access to the premium site, as we do with uh, all donations of $7 or more. And you can support the show at support.greatdetectives.net by PayPal. And there is also a mailing address uh, there if you'd like to uh, support us that way. Also at greatdetectives.net, I review the Big Finish uh, audio uh, drama for Doctor Who, The Condemned. And you can get all of my uh, reviews and uh, comments from greatdetectives.net automatically delivered to your Kindle. And you can try that service out for uh, free for two weeks in the Kindle store. Well, now it's time for today's episode of Dragnet. The original air date uh, is December the 22nd of 1949. And the title is A 22 Rifle for Christmas. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A small boy is reported missing from his home. His age, nine years. Foul play is suspected. Your job, find him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, December 22nd. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way into work, and it was 3.55 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, Joe. Ben, what's doing? Oh, pretty quiet. How's your mother? Oh, that cold's still hanging on. Bad cough. Doc says nothing serious. My kid's got the same thing. Must be some kind of a virus going around. Yeah. Is that a new suit you got on? Oh, yeah. Ma figured I needed one. Let me see. Oh, yeah, that's a nice shade of blue. Where'd you get it? Quincy's down in South Fig. Look okay? Turn around. Right. Oh, yeah, that's a good fit. Uh, did you get all the reports on the Webster case yet? Yeah, all taken care of. Let me get it. Homicide, Friday. Well, this is Levinson, Unit 113J. Got something for you. Yeah, Harry, what's doing? Doherty and I are out here on Collis Avenue, 4656. Trying to track down a nine-year-old boy. What's the story? Kid's missing, suspicion of foul play. How long has he been gone? About two hours. Looks like a job for homicide. How do you figure? Kid was last seen playing in the backyard of his home. Yeah? We checked over the yard. Find anything? Bloodstains, lots of them. They look new. Ben and I left a message for Chief of Detectives Thad Brown Then we went over to the crime lab, picked up Lieutenant Lee Jones And drove out the Arroyo Seco Freeway to Collis Avenue 
It was an average neighborhood. Number 4656 was a one-story green stucco residence situated on the corner of Collis Avenue and Harrison Drive. Beyond the backyard was a tract of undeveloped land covered with scrub oak. Harry Levinson from Highland Park Juvenile was waiting for us in front of the house. Back this way, fellas. I'm coming, Link. Wait till I get my back. Okay. Who notified you that the boy was missing, Harry? The mother. Said she went out to do some Christmas shopping about 11 this morning, left the boy home. She came back about 2 this afternoon, he was gone. What's the name? Johnstone. Kid's name is Stanley, 9 years old. Mm-hmm. Was this gate open like this when you got here? Oh, yeah, I haven't touched the thing. Uh, here are the stains over here, Lieutenant Jones, uh, along the edge of the walk, see? Yeah. Let me see. Quite a few stains, huh? Looks like it might be blood. I'll tie some benzidine on these spots here. Yeah, there we are. See what happens? Where's the kid's mother now, Harry? Yeah, in the house. Doherty's talking to her. Did you talk to any of the neighbors? People next door. Uh, one's on this side. They couldn't tell us anything. There it is, fellas. Yeah, These spots are covered with benzidine. They're turning blue. Blood stains, all right. Can't say definitely whether it's human or animal blood. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to the lab to run it through. Yeah, biological precipitin test. Hand me one of those glass vials from my bag, will you? Yeah. Okay, here you are. Thanks. Scrape some of these flakes off for a test. There we are. How soon can you tap the blood for us, Lee? Precipitin test won't run more than 20 minutes. It'll take three or four hours to run a blood grouping, though. That's it. Anything else you want to check? Levinson, anything else? Oh, uh, right here in my handkerchief. Empty shell. That marker over there by the rose bush, that's where I found it. Mm, from a 22, huh? Yeah. Might tie in, might not. Mark it and dump it in this envelope, will you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shell. There you go. Did you get out a missing broadcast in the boy here? Uh, Darty did about a half hour ago. Oh, here's a description here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mother know about the bloodstains? No, we didn't tell her. She's worried enough already. And she has no idea what might have happened to her boy? No more than we do. She checked all her friends, relatives. We're covering the neighborhood. No trace so far. Not much to go on. Bloodstains, empty cartridge. Could mean a hundred things. Mm. Any ideas, Franny? Yeah, just one, and I don't like it. p.m. Thursday, December 22nd. The neighborhood search for nine-year-old Stanley Johnstone continued. Lee Jones went back to the crime lab to start the precipitant test and the blood grouping. Levinson and his partner, Doherty, from Highland Juvenile, stood by. We called Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, and he ordered up a special detail to aid in the search for the missing boy. Ben and I questioned the boy's mother, Mrs. Ruth Johnstone, a woman in her early 40s. She seemed fairly calm under the circumstances. Mrs. Johnstone, um... Is your boy standing in the habit of wandering off without telling you where he's going? No, he's not in the habit of wandering off, but he has done it before. When was the last time, Miss Johnstone? You don't have any children, do you, Sergeant Friday? No, I'm not married. Well, there comes that time in every young boy's life when he feels that it's time to leave home, to go out on his own. Usually happens somewhere around 8 to 10. I think I know what you mean. I've got a boy. Well, then you know how it is. My husband and I scolded Stanley one day after school. He was quite put out about it. He thought George and I were unfair. Packed a few of his things and left. How long was he gone? Oh, no time at all. About two hours. I was worried about him, but my husband said to leave him alone. Said every boy had to go through that stage. Well, then you think he's run away from home again this time? Yes, I think so. He's been gone about four hours now, and I have a funny feeling about it. Did you and his father have some misunderstanding with the boy recently? Well, that's just it. We haven't. 
I don't mind telling you now that we're talking about it. I'm, I am getting worried. Any place around that he might like to visit? Hobby shop, playground, where he might be? Yeah, there's um, Jensen's model shop and little Shanna Burroughs, but I've already called him and he hasn't been seen all day. I called all his friends. They have no idea where he is either. We'd like a list of all his friends and the places that he was known to frequent. Oh, yeah, all right. I'll give them to you. Where do you suppose he is? Where's your husband now, Miss Johnstone? Oh, he's at work. George works for the city. He's a fireman. What house is he stationed at? Engine Company 12. He's working the A platoon. He'll be home tomorrow morning. I haven't told him that Stanley's gone. Was well, there any chance that the boy might be down at the firehouse with his father? No. No, he seldom goes down there anymore. No, I don't think he's there. I'm awfully worried. May I call my husband? Certainly. Go right ahead. I know George will be worried. Stanley's been gone too long. Hello? May I speak with George Johnstone? This is Mrs. Johnstone. Thank you. I hate to call George at his work. Yes, ma'am. Does your husband own a gun? Yes, he does. What caliber? Do you know? Well, it's a forty-five automatic. He got it. George? This is Ruth. George, is Stanley down there with you by any chance? Oh. No, I can't find him anywhere. He hasn't been here when I came home from my shopping. Uh, there are two policemen here. No, I said there are two policemen here. Oh, no, dear. I'll call you if we don't find him soon. All right, dear. Yes, you too. Goodbye. Well, I, I didn't think he'd be with George. That forty-five. is that the only gun in the household? Well, yes. Why are you asking about guns? Is, has anything happened that you're not telling me about? No, ma'am. Just routine checking. We'll have to take a look at that forty-five off, if you don't mind. Maybe I should tell you. We... We do have another gun in the house, but it's all wrapped up. George bought it for Stanley's Christmas present. May we see it, please? Well, yes. Will, will you have to unwrap it? Yes, I'm afraid so. I think I can reach it. We, we had to hide it. So let me see. Here's the paper it was wrapped in. Stanley must have found it. It's gone. See, here's the gift card in the box the gun came in. The rifle. Can I look at that box, ma'am? Thank you. How about it, Joe? Twenty-two caliber. Thursday, December 22nd, 5.15 p.m. It was getting dark. The search for the missing boy continued. We checked the list of Stanley Johnstone's friends. None of them or their parents had any idea of his whereabouts. We talked with Levinson again. He had been in touch with the detail combing the neighborhood. They had found nothing. We went down to Collis Avenue and 10th Street, service station on the corner. One nickel, Joe? No, I got one. You watch for that, huh? Yeah. Thank you. City Hall. Two six six seven, please. Two six six seven. Hi, Lee. Joe Friday. Yeah, Joe. Any sign of the Johnson kid? No, not yet. How are you coming? Finished the precipitant test. It's human blood. Yeah. Working in the blood group now. Do you know what type the Johnson boy has? Well, we didn't want to upset his mother. I thought we'd wait till the last thing. We're still in the neighborhood. Yeah, check with the family physician. That way you won't disturb him. Yeah, we figured on that. Oh, just a minute, Lee. Yeah, Ben. Boss just pulled up. Okay. Uh, Thad Brown's out here now. I'll check you later, Lee, huh? Yeah, right, Joe. All right, goodbye. 
Uh, gentlemen, how's it going? Just checked with Lee Jones. Yeah, I know. It's human blood. What do you think? We talked with the boy's mother, Miss Johnston. Found a gun missing. Yeah. Caliber's the same as the empty casing that Levinson found. Twenty-two. You said the gun was missing. Yeah, the Johnstones were going to give it to the boy as a Christmas present. They had it hidden, but it's gone now. Any idea who took it? Well, they left the Christmas wrapping behind. I think it was the kid. Twenty-two rifle, huh? Nine-year-old boy. When are they going to learn? First, it's carbide cannons on the 4th of July. The city issued ordinance after ordinance. But a few thousand kids around the country had to lose their eyes, fingers, hands. Before the parents gives us their full cooperation to outlaw them. I know what you mean. Sure you do. You and every other cop in the country became the heavies trying to clamp down on them. It's always the same story. This time it's guns for Christmas. I know what you're thinking, but we're not sure yet. Listen, Friday, there's a city ordinance against giving a gun to a kid. You know that. Yes, I know that. There's a missing boy and a missing gun. There's blood on the ground and an empty shell. That's enough for me. I'm going to stay with it. Something's got to break. Yeah. I hope it's not the hearts of that kid's parents. Oh, hi, Chief. I've been looking for you, Friday. What do you got, Harry? Found the gun. New 22 rifle. Strong smell of cordite. I'd say it's been recently fired. Where'd you find it, Levinson? Uh, back up there in that scrub oak. Up behind the Johnston house. Mrs. Johnstone identified it. Buckley took it down to the crime lab. Thanks, Harry. Uh, is Miss Johnston okay? Mm, pretty sick now. Killaby came up with something else. What's that? There's another one missing. An eight-year-old boy. 6.30 p.m. We talked with Officer Killaby about the other missing boy. He told us that his name was Stephen Morheim, eight years old. His family had just moved into the neighborhood, and it seemed that no one besides the Morheim family knew that the boys played together. Mrs. Morheim told us that Stephen told her that he was going out to play and that he'd be home by 6 o'clock for dinner. She told us that he was an unusually prompt boy and almost never overstayed his playtime. We got a description of the Morheim boy and put out a missing broadcast. We called the John Stone's family doctor. He told us that Stanley's blood was type O. At 7 p.m., we talked again with Mrs. John Morheim. Are you sure Mrs. Johnstone doesn't know where the boys are? She has no idea, Miss Morham. It's terrible. It's just awful. I feel there's more to this thing. Something you're not telling me. Well, there's no use to upset you until we know a few things for sure. Then you are holding back something. Now, please try not to worry, Miss Morham. There are certain questions we'll have to ask, routine questions in any kind of investigation. Is there anything else you want to know? Yes, ma'am. What is your boy's blood type? That's a funny question. Do you think anything's happened to him? Have you found him and you're not telling me? No, ma'am, we haven't found him. We don't think anything's happened to him. His blood type? Yes, ma'am. I think I have it written down in Stevie's baby book. Yes, here it is. Type O. Thank you. What if I might use your phone, please? Yes, of course. It's in the hall. I'll be right back, ma'am. Yeah, okay. Two six six seven, please. Two six six seven. Right, Pinker. Hello, Ray. This is Friday. Lee, there. Uh, just a minute, Joe. Take two, Lee. Joe speaking. Checking back, Lee. Uh, did you get the blood types on the two missing boys? Yeah, both boys type O. So are the stains, Joe. Type O. You are listening to Dragnet for the solution to an actual case from official police files. 
8 p.m., Thursday, December 22nd. Still no sign of either of the missing boys. Chief of Detectives Thad Brown went back to headquarters to direct the search from there. He dispatched another detail of 50 men to aid in the hunt for the missing youngsters. 8.30 p.m. was getting colder. The citrus growers were warned to expect a freeze. We went up the block to see Mrs. Johnstone. Her husband had quit work early and returned home. We talked with him. He could tell us nothing more than we already knew. We still had not informed either of the families about the blood stains and the empty cartridge casing which had been discovered in the backyard of the Johnstone home. It was more than possible that they had a right to know about our findings, but Ben and I felt that there was no cause to add to the distress of the two families at this time. If the two missing boys were found alive and well, then the blood stains and the cartridge case would be of no concern to the relieved parents. At 8.40 p.m., Ben and I left the Johnstone house and went to the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Morheim. Ms. Morheim, you said your husband worked at a market? Yes. He telephoned about 15 minutes ago and said he was closing up right away. He'll be here any minute. I do wish Stevie would call or come home. It's so cold out tonight. All he had on was a thin cotton jacket. Please try not to worry. We're doing everything we can. He's going to be all right. Stevie's father's such a sensitive man. He and the boy are so close. I know he's terribly upset. Well, you're sure there's no place you might have forgotten? Some place where the boy might be? No, no place. No. Anything happened to the boy, it'll just kill you. No, no. You sit still. I'll get it, Miss Morgan. Joe. Hi, Harry. The Johnstone kid. He's been found. Oh, he's home, Sergeant. He's come home. Thank God he's all right. Where's he been? Did he tell you? No. No, he didn't. He, his clothes were all dirty and he's acting strange. I've never seen him like this. How do you mean, Miss Johnson? Well, he just came in the front door and said, Hello, Mom. And then he sat down in a chair and stared at the floor. He won't talk to his father or me. Do you mind if I talk to him? No, go ahead. I asked him about the little Moorheim boy and he wouldn't tell me a thing. Where is he now? In the living room. Looks all right. Yes. Son. Son, this is a police officer. He he wants to talk to you. Now, don't be afraid, dear. He only wants to ask you some questions. Son. You see, Sergeant? Stanley, come on, look at me, son. Get your head up, youngster. Come on, now that's better. I had your mother pretty worried, you know that. You want to tell us where you've been? I wish you'd try to get him to eat a little something. You hear that, son? Want something to eat? Stanley, there's another little boy up the street who hasn't come home. Do you know where he is? His father and mother are worried about him, too. Just like your folks were. You've got to help us find him, son. I... I killed him. I killed Steve with the twenty-two. We were only playing. <laughs> but I killed him. How do you know you killed him? Maybe he's only hurt. Now, isn't that it? <laughs> no, he's dead. I know he's dead. The gun went off. We forgot we put bullets in there. Where is he, Stanley? I hid him. I was scared. I didn't want anybody to find him. Where did you hide him, son? In a cave up on the hill. I didn't mean it. It was my pal. You want to show us where, son? Yes, I'll show you. Please don't send me to jail. 
9.15 p.m., Thursday, December 22nd. Nine-year-old Stanley John Stone led the way up the hill behind the backyard of his home. He showed us the wagon he moved the body in. His father came along with us. About 50 feet from the crest of the hill, the boy pointed to a thicket of scrub oak. There we found a small cave holding the body of Stephen Morheim. There was a single bullet wound in his chest just below his heart. He was dead. We covered the body. Stanley. Stanley, how did it happen? I knew my folks were going to give me the gun for Christmas. I knew where it was, and I got it. There was a box of bullets with it. Were you pointing the gun at Stephen? No, sir. No, sir, I wasn't. It was Steve's turn to play with it. I was chasing him. He tripped over the stump there in our backyard and fell. The gun hit him in the stomach. And it went off. Why do you think you killed him if you're telling us the truth? I'm telling the truth, honest. That's the truth. All right, I believe you, son. But why do you think you killed him? It was my gun. Steve would still be alive if I didn't go and get it. I should have waited till Christmas. It's all my fault. Where have you been all this time? In the cave with Steve. What were you doing in there, son? I was praying. I was praying for God to make him alive again. After a thorough investigation, Ben and I were convinced that the shooting of Stephen Morheim was accidental. Lieutenant Lee Jones' findings substantiated the John Stone boy's story even to the smallest detail. We put in a call to the coroner's office and acquainted him with the facts. He designated a local mortuary to handle the body pending autopsy and granted us permission to remove the body to the Morheim home. Mrs. Morheim collapsed. The family doctor was called. Ben and I sat in the living room to wait for John Morheim, the dead boy's father. Edith! Edith! Mr. Morheim? Yes. You the police? Yes, sir. Where's Edith? Where's my wife? Has my boy come home? Have you found him? Yes, sir. Where is he? Steve! Stevie! Where's Steve? He's hurt, isn't he? Yes, sir. Where is he? I want to see him. He's hurt bad, Mr. Morheim. Where is he? I want to see him. He's in his room. How bad? Pretty bad. He's... He's dead. All right, if I go in. If you want to. Will you go with me? Sure. Don't make it any harder on yourself, Mr. Morheim. I want to see my book. <laughs> Mr. Morheim. Stevie, Stevie, Stevie. Listen to me, son. We've got you a lot of nice things for Christmas. Everything you wanted. I, I got you the three new cars for the train. The, the one with the searchlight is really works. <laughs> Son, you, you... You got that new switch you wanted to it. A lot more track. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
ممکن هر بگم جنازت December 24, 1948, a coroner's inquest was held in the county morgue, city and county of Los Angeles, state of California. In a moment, the results of that inquest. At the coroner's inquest, it was officially recorded that Stephen Morheim's death was the result of an accident. Stanley Johnstone, age nine, was absolved of any legal responsibility for his friend's death. You have just heard Dragnets, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet honors Hennepin County, Minneapolis, state of Minnesota, and the men of the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office, another of America's great law enforcement agencies. One of these men, Sheriff Ed Ryan, 
veteran police officer and department administrator who dedicates his life to making yours more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, portion transcribed from Los Angeles. Be sure to hear songs by Morton Downey tonight on NBC. Welcome back. I'm going to discuss this episode in two parts. The first is as an episode itself, and the second is as a Christmas episode. I have to say that coming at this uh, several years since I have listened to it, I have a deeper appreciation for this one. I think this is a very solidly told story. There's a very good building of emotional tension throughout the entire story. And there's also this aspect, perhaps of a different time, of the policemen really hoping against hope. I think, particularly when they were talking about why they were keeping information from the parents, uh, you know, they found this blood, it's human blood, but no need to alarm the parents, it could all just turn out to be fine. And even when Friday was questioning Stanley Johnstone, you know, it, it, he's, he's all right, isn't he? That's what it is, son, isn't it? But he wasn't. And then William Johnstone, as the father of the other boy, a little confusing, I know, turns in a really good performance. I've said it before of violence on Dragnet. For far too many programs, both radio and television, violence is really no big deal. It's part of the show. It's something you expect. It doesn't excite you. It's just the backdrop of what happens week in and week out. Dragnet, when it portrays violence, it makes it significant because it isn't something that we see on screen or hear on radio every week. And I felt the same thing with emotion. The stereotype in the picture of Dragnet is of uh, people very calmly reading a dialogue. And certainly off television, uh, over teleprompter, that was true. And even over radio, you didn't tend to have hysteria or overreaction. You had things a little bit more low-key, so it felt a lot more realistic. But the reality is, there are times when emotion just becomes overwhelming, and you get it here. That is a very powerful moment with the father of the slain boy. Because you don't have people having emotional breakdowns every week on Dragnet, it really does stand out. There's a lot of realism, I think, in how they did it, particularly with Friday trying to comfort or in just, just perhaps even calm down the grieving father and Romero basically stopping him because it was natural and it was what um, needed to be done and uh, it was actually quite healthy. The one thing that I have heard some complaints from reviewers of the TV show and also maybe the radio show, but of the TV episode is they really don't get this end where he runs down the street to the boy's house um, to um, give him his son's um, presence. And I think that uh, in some ways, it speaks to the type of man the father was, because he had been dealt this huge blow in the loss of his son. And then he thought of his son's friend, who just had this huge burden on him now of what happened, and the guilt, 
over something that had happened that Johnstone boy didn't really understand what he was doing. And it was that comfort and that desire to let him know it would be okay, even in the midst of overwhelming grief. And that is a very powerful moment. I know it's hard for us to relate to in our 21st century world. I I was thinking as I was listening to it that today this whole tragedy would uh, end up as a big uh, wrongful death lawsuit. Now, when this episode was broadcast, it was the source of some uh, controversy with some protest uh, raised, in particular, by the NRA. And I do think probably most of the issue for the NRA stemmed from Joe Friday's closing line about a gun being a lousy gift for a kid for Christmas, when culturally Christmases or birthdays would often be when people were, you know, introduced to guns, and usually not in the unsafe circumstances in this episode. And in some ways, the NRA's opposition or concerns with this drove Jack Webb to actually rerun the episode, or to uh, redo it for several seasons on Dragnet. When it did come to television, the NRA took a very different approach, using the episode and obtaining it to uh, teach a lesson in uh, gun safety. And, And however you feel about current or past gun debates, and we're not going to get into that, on this show, the way the... Stones handled the gun was certainly very unsafe. And how whether you agreed with Sergeant Friday or not about the appropriateness of a gun as a gift, it's not hard to feel that this uh, family handled it in the worst uh, possible way. Now, on to it as a Christmas special. I have to say that I'm really thankful that the big little Jesus, displaced this as the um, recognized favorite uh, Christmas special. It's not really something that would become a beloved classic, to put it mildly. While I could see uh, the big little Jesus, and it has been uh, uh, aired year after year on a lot of channels that have rerun Dragnet, it's hard to imagine people... Uh, saying, come in, come in, let, let you, we're watching the Dragnet Christmas special. You're just in time to see the Johnstone boy break down in tears. In many ways, this episode calls to mind some uh, other uh, Dragnet episodes, which were set at Christmas time, but never aired at Christmas. Among those were the big uh, present, the big missing, the, and the big hands are among uh, quite a few. The reason I think that this was originally aired was the same reason that Dragnet did the episode The Big Trio right before the 4th of July uh, driving uh, weekend. The Big Trio was three short cases uh, that chronicled the dangers of reckless driving before the July 4th weekend, which is one of the worst uh, traffic accident days of the year. And the thought of uh, 22 rifle for Christmas seemed to be to discourage parents from doing something that would lead to tragedy. But if it's getting a gun for Christmas or not taking proper precautions, December 22nd is kind of late in the game. So to me, it probably would have made more sense um, a couple weeks earlier. Ultimately, Richard Breen, when he was brought on to write the uh, 1954 Dragnet movie, 
expressed his feelings about it that it was not appropriate for the festive time of Christmas. And certainly he wrote a story that is something more that people are in the mood to watch and listen to around the holidays. And indeed, there's very little Christmassy about the episode, even in the build-up. And at the time of this episode, they hadn't quite mastered a technique that I noticed quite a bit in those in the mid-50s, where an episode that would be very heavy and dramatic would be preceded by conversation between Friday and his partner that was so light, funny, relaxing, charming, that when this really heavy case um, hit, it hit you like a ton of bricks. But in this case, uh, Friday and Romero aren't even talking about Christmas before the episode, which definitely makes it fit more into the uh, mold of those other Christmas time episodes that didn't air around Christmas. Overall, this is still a very thought-provoking episode, which, despite a slow start, really uh, does pack an emotional punch and certainly invite a law of analysis. Or if it doesn't actually invite it, I spent nine minutes analyzing it anyway. Now we turn to listener comments and feedback, and we have one regarding the departure of Raymond Burr as Chief of Detectives Ed Backstrand. David opines, uh, kind of sad to see Raymond uh, Burr go, though it was a bit weird listening to him and Webb on this show in such uh, proximity to Pat Novak for hire. Every time Chief Backstrand showed up, I expected to try to pin the crime on Friday. <laughs> and I imagine there were probably a few listeners in 1949 uh, who might have had the same reaction hearing those two familiar voices. Uh, and... That was part of the reason why we re-ran Pat Novak for Hire right before Dragnet. In fact, the main reason. Though uh, I think the actual departure had to do with a different direction for the show as well as for Raymond Burr's uh, career. Though it was definitely an amicable parting. As I said, we'll see Raymond Burr in the first episode of Dragnet. We'll play uh, probably next month, I'm thinking. Finally, we have a, uh, another question from uh, Aaron, who says, Maybe I overlooked it, but how about Gangbusters? I know it doesn't have a consistent lead, but it's definitely a good detective show. Well, I'll agree that Gangbusters is a good show and a true classic. Um, really enjoyable, but it's more a documentary uh, crime story. Um, a lot of episodes, uh, it really is about the criminal and about them being um, brought to justice. With this very strong crime doesn't pay. And it shows their success, their brutality, and all the negative uh, traits they have and how it leads to their utter downfall. With the uh, detectives not even really being uh, characters. And... Uh, Gangbusters is great, just doesn't really fit in with my vision for the show. But thanks so much for the suggestion, Aaron. I really do appreciate it. We will be back on Monday with The Saint, and then join us again uh, next Saturday for Dragnet. In the meantime, send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.